Before we start the show, we wanted to let you know about another show you might enjoy, America Dissected. There's so much out there that we need to understand, like how new genetic discoveries could change our relationship with our own genes, or how our addiction to social media changes our brains. Every week, Dr. Abdul El Sayed, a physician, epidemiologist, and the former Detroit Health Commissioner, offers perspectives on these issues and more, and talks to leaders who are working on new ways to solve them. From Crooked Media, new episodes of America Dissected are available every Tuesday, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Welcome to Skim This. We're getting right into it this week with a story everyone's talking about, Britney Spears' court appearance to try to end her legal conservatorship. We'll put that story in context and give you the details on two other court stories this week from the Supreme Court. We'll also dig into why violent crime rates have been on the rise around the country and what can be done about that. Then we'll look at the campaign to rein in and potentially break up America's biggest tech companies. And we'll close things out by talking to the 30-year-old woman who just won the world's top environmental prize. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. All right, let's get to some headlines from this week's news and give you the context on why they matter. First up. Okay, now to Britney Spears, who is pleading with a judge today to end her court-ordered conservatorship, which she calls, and I quote here, abusive, telling the judge, again, I quote, I just want my life back. You probably know the basics of this one, but this is part of a bigger story. Britney Spears has lived under something called a conservatorship for 13 years. That's when a judge appoints a person or organization responsible for the care of another adult who can't care for themselves or manage their finances. In the mid-2000s, Spears' apparent mental health struggles played out in public, and in 2008, her father, Jamie Spears, took control of her life and money as her conservator. But experts say this conservatorship is pretty unusual. Over the past 13 years, Spears has continued to work and make millions of dollars, She released four albums, held a four-year Las Vegas residency, and briefly worked as a judge for the U.S. version of The X Factor. And that's caused skepticism over whether she actually needs a conservatorship. She also was noticeably quiet about it on social media, causing some fans to wonder whether she wasn't being allowed to speak her mind. Then, on Wednesday, Spears pleaded with the judge to end her conservatorship, marking the first time she's really spoken out against her situation. Some notable and disturbing parts of her testimony focused on her reproductive freedom. Spears said she's been barred from removing her IUD to have children, despite wanting to be married and have another baby. She also said she's been forced to work against her will, which she compared to sex trafficking. Despite the judge praising her courage in speaking out, Spears' conservatorship isn't over. She still needs to submit a formal petition requesting its termination. But bigger picture, this case is shining a light on conservatorships in general. They're arrangements designed to help people who aren't well enough to take care of themselves, but they can sometimes lead to cases of abuse for those whose lives are in someone else's hands. A 
Okay, our next two headlines unfolded in a very different courtroom this week. The Supreme Court has handed a massive victory to college athletes in their efforts to receive fair compensation. The justices unanimously rejected the NCAA's rules limiting benefits colleges can provide athletes. Here's what went down. On Monday, the Supreme Court told the National Collegiate Athletic Association, or the NCAA, you gotta do better by student-athletes. Former college athletes had sued, saying, hey, it's not right that we don't get compensated. And P.S., we make a lot of money for you guys. Historically, the NCAA has argued that college athletes are amateurs and can only be given compensation in the form of tuition, fees, housing, and other attendance-related costs. But all nine Supreme Court judges said, actually, colleges, you can do more. After this ruling, student-athletes can be provided things like tuition for grad school, paid internships, laptops, and tutoring. Which makes a difference, especially as a lot of college athletes come from low-income backgrounds. For now, though, athletes will likely still have to wait to go pro to get a proper salary. Speaking of the Supreme Court, they made another big decision this week. I was a 14-year-old kid expressing my feelings. This one's being called a major student-free speech case. Brandy Levy had just found out that she didn't make her public high school's varsity cheer squad. So, like any other 14-year-old, she posted on Snapchat with a caption that included F cheer, which her school didn't love and gave her a year-long suspension from cheer. This week, the Supreme Court ruled punishing Levy for expressing herself away from school and on social media violates her freedom of speech. So there you have it, Gen Z. Go wild. No matter where you live in the U.S., you've probably been hearing about rising rates of violent crime lately, a trend that's been happening since the start of the pandemic. We wanted to learn more about what's going on, what's behind it, and how this week President Biden said he hopes to fix it. To do that, we called up Luisa Aviles. She used to work for the NYPD and for the New York City mayor. And now she directs a research project at the National Network for Safe Communities, a part of the John Jay College in Manhattan. What's absolutely clear is that big cities across the country saw a tremendous surge in gun violence and homicide in 2020 and in the first quarter of 2021. Big cities across the country were up in 2020, something like 30% in homicides. And in cities like New York, that means that the city is seeing homicide numbers that it hasn't seen in 15 years. New York has been a great national success story around declining homicide and shooting violence, which is part of what makes this so upsetting. Avile says despite this recent increase in violent crime, crime rates are still lower than they were 10 or 20 years ago. And in most places, she says crime is occurring where it's long been more common, in underfunded, economically deprived, or educationally segregated communities. This isn't random. It's not a random increase. This is not people who have been completely uninvolved in and not at risk for violence suddenly becoming involved in that, right? This is parts of our community that live with this risk, live with higher rates of violence, that are exposed at higher rates to violence. Things are ramping up in those places and in that way. But that doesn't explain why things got bad when they did. That's where the pandemic came in. Avile says some cities have been using types of face-to-face -face community outreach called credible messenger programs to de-escalate violence. 
These programs are proven to reduce violent crime by connecting people with services that actually address their problems. Similar programs in hospitals that connect shooting victims to services are also proven to reduce homicides. But when things started shutting down last year, those programs stopped. That kind of policing wasn't happening. And across the board, frontline public safety practitioners were themselves affected by COVID. They were ill, they were out, they were in quarantine. And so in a really meaningful way at the height of the pandemic, I think a lot of cities lost, at least temporarily, some of the tools that they'd really painstakingly grown and invested in over the last several years. And I think it's pretty clear that that contributed to the spike. And then there's been a lot of smart commentary on just the fact that community-level interventions, investments in summer youth employment, summer camps, community schools, the sorts of community-level supports that can engage particularly people between maybe 15 and 24 in vulnerable moments and in vulnerable periods, a lot of that went away. Things got even worse from there, according to police commissioners around the country. Reporting from CNN suggested that during social justice protests last summer, police concentrated in city centers, leaving fewer law enforcement resources in places where they were needed. Meanwhile, the pandemic took other tolls on communities and individuals. Top law enforcement officials say it caused social isolation, unemployment that increased people's desperation, and the actual loss of people that held families and communities together. This week, like a lot of recent weeks, violent crime was in the news, especially here in New York City, where voters selected their nominees to be the next mayor. Crime was a clear number one issue in the election, as Democrats rallied behind a former cop as their likely nominee, while Republicans chose a guy who spent decades running a volunteer public safety group. Avila says it makes sense that this trend has become a political issue. Violence is personal. When someone feels unsafe, whether they are in fact unsafe or not, or when they think that their family is unsafe, it takes on a really outsized role in guiding folks' thoughts and, and conversations and decision-making, right? And I think that's understandable, but I think that it's important to be sort of rigorous with ourselves, to be guided by the, the facts and to be open to the idea, right, that fears are, are easily manipulated. They're subject to all kinds of biases that we can hold without ever realizing. Fear of crime in particular is profoundly racialized. So I think the best thing that policymakers can do is to be guided by the science. On Wednesday, President Biden tried to do just that, presenting a five-part plan to deal with the increase in violent crime. He called for investing more in the community policing programs that Aviles talked about earlier. Also in the plan, programs that help violent offenders restart their lives and find jobs after prison. Summer youth programs, substance use disorder treatment, and housing support could also be expanded. Biden's final two points involved a pair of buzzwords more likely to get people talking, guns and police. Biden called for cracking down on law-breaking gun dealers who don't do background checks, who fake records, or knowingly sell guns to people who shouldn't be allowed to buy them. Biden ultimately wants more money from Congress to do that, but in the meantime, he said five strike forces would be deploying in the next month to go after illegal gun dealers. And finally, Biden said that, quote, this is not a time to turn our backs on law enforcement. Though we should point out, he hardly gave the police a blank check either. 
Instead, he said communities dealing with rising gun violence would be allowed to use some COVID relief funds to hire more officers, specifically for community policing, or for going after illegal gun dealers or gun traffickers. And there was another catch. Cities can't increase police funding beyond pre-pandemic levels. So while Biden's plan is far from a defund the police approach, Avila says it could help cities fund law enforcement programs that were working before COVID. Right now, some cities are in crisis. I don't think every city needs big infusions of new funding for policing. But the police in this moment have a big role in producing public safety. That's just true. They are in most places, if not by design, the best actor. They are in serious ways the only one standing. We don't have, in practical terms, the alternatives stood up and staffed and at capacity to take on a lot of what police have been doing. So I'm open to the idea, right, that there are some cities that, given the impacts of COVID and retirements and coupled with the extreme escalation of violence, may feel that additional support for their police department, particularly in the areas of community policing, should be a part of their public safety landscape. I, I hope that it's a temporary part. Louisa, thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. Democrats and Republicans in Congress recently came together to take on a common enemy, big tech. Specifically, the big four tech companies, Apple, Amazon, Google, and Facebook. Earlier this month, a bipartisan group of lawmakers in the House introduced five bills that are trying to strip away some of the power those companies have. If these bills passed, they'd be the biggest update to antitrust laws in decades. Before we get into the pros and cons of passing these laws to regulate big tech, let's explain the point of antitrust laws. Antitrust laws are used by governments to help set up the rules of a competitive marketplace that's good for businesses and consumers. These laws aim to stop companies from becoming too powerful and turning into monopolies that dominate entire industries and face no competition. Which leaves us without alternatives if we don't like what one company is selling. Here's looking at you, cable and internet companies. One way antitrust laws try to stop this is by making it financially frustrating for companies to buy up their competitors in the first place. And the other way is now that companies are enormous, antitrust laws can be used to break them up. As in saying, Amazon, pick a lane. You can't be a marketplace, a web hosting company, and a manufacturer. With Congress finally thinking about whether to do this, we wanted to explain both sides of the debate about whether it should. Let's start with the arguments for breaking up these tech giants. One argument you'll hear is that these tech companies purposefully crush their competition, meaning smaller businesses in similar spaces can't survive. You know how Amazon is a digital marketplace where you buy things. Well, they also sell their own products, and they put their products at the top of their search results. And when Amazon is the place where you buy everything, the number of competitors squeezed out by this could be massive. Some regulators say Apple might be unfairly crushing competition too. Apple not only gets your business from selling you phones, but they also own the App Store, the only way of downloading software onto the phone. And it charges a 30% fee for software developers to put their apps on the store. If developers don't wanna pay that fee, well, good luck getting anyone to download your app. 
Antitrust advocates say situations like this put smaller companies, including ones with great ideas, products, or software, out of business. And in the name of promoting innovation, regulation is a good idea. Another argument in favor of breaking up big tech is that these companies are worth trillions of dollars and are just too big, period. And these businesses being rich AF means they have a lot of money to reinvest to become even bigger, acquiring more competitors and controlling even more market share. And a third argument is that some of these companies have a reckless track record when it comes to handling people's private information. For instance, Facebook has 2.8 billion active monthly users, and they use information about those users to make money by selling that info to advertisers. Some companies have also obtained that data, including complex psychological profiles about you without permission, like in the Cambridge Analytica scandal. But if you don't like it and want to take your data elsewhere, good luck finding a place for it. Four of the five most downloaded social media networks in the world are owned by Facebook, So the competition that maybe ought to be forcing Facebook to do better just doesn't exist. So those are the arguments in favor of trying to strip these companies of some of their power. The arguments against... The first is a classic argument against antitrust. Basically, if you overregulate companies in the marketplace or take away their innovations, they're not going to try to innovate again. The big four tech companies are some of the biggest spenders in research and development, and some experts say if they decrease those investments, it could really hurt the economy. Another argument against breaking them up is that the government shouldn't be picking winners and losers. And it's not fair for Uncle Sam to step in to limit the success of any company. And finally, in the case of big tech, some people say lawmakers may not be acting out of the goodness of their hearts on behalf of consumers. Democratic lawmakers aren't happy with big tech because they say disinformation spreads really easily on some of their platforms. While Republican lawmakers say conservative voices are being censored on social media. So both Dems and Republicans may be mad at big tech for reasons that have nothing to do with free marketplace competition or consumer protection at all. And if all you want to do is pick a fight, maybe don't use antitrust laws to do that. Those are some of the arguments in favor and against breaking up some of the biggest companies in America and in our own lives. But as for whether we'll actually see Republicans and Democrats play nice and get any of these bills passed, we'll keep you posted. And P.S. If there's a debate you're having with friends or family right now and you want us to break down both sides for you, let us know. Send us an email to audio at theskim.com. Pride Month is coming to a close. And while that signals the end of corporation rainbow flag season, when it comes to LGBTQ plus issues around the world, we still have a long way to go. That's Sarah Kate Ellis, president and CEO of the advocacy group GLAAD. 
there's still nearly 70 countries around the world that continue to criminalize same-sex relations. But it seems like the U.S. government wants to change that. Just days after his inauguration, President Biden signed a memo promising to prioritize LGBTQ rights in America's diplomatic dealings around the world. And Ellis says that's the right approach, since as far as she sees it, change starts at the top. It starts with him leveraging other opportunities to show how important we feel as a country that this is, that human rights are critical. We have our embassies, we have our power within those embassies, and then we have power within other deals and trades that we do. Let's get more specific, since Biden's big February memo did set out some pretty clear goals. First, it directed the U.S. to put pressure on the 69 countries that still criminalize same-sex relations or gender identity or expression. Second, it said the U.S. should do more to protect LGBTQI asylum seekers and refugees, especially if they're facing an immediate threat. Third, it called for prioritizing anti-discrimination work through foreign aid. And fourth, said the U.S. should speak out quickly when human rights abuses are committed overseas. So that's what Biden signed the U.S. up for. Five months into his presidency, how's he doing? According to Jessica Stern, director of the advocacy group Outright International, LGBTQ plus asylum seekers and refugees are being given priority in the immigration process. There's no question that this administration is trying to put its actions where its words have been in actions big and small, and we expect to see more of it. In addition to domestic policy moves like changing immigration policy, Stern says she's seen the U.S. start to come back to advocating for human rights at the U.N., where Outright International didn't feel a whole lot of love over the past four years. Under the Trump administration, we maintained a positive relationship with what's known as working-level diplomats at the U.S. mission to the U.N., but at a senior level, no one would talk to us. It wasn't even 72 hours after President Biden was sworn in that I got my first email from the U.S. mission to the U.N. And Stern says it wasn't the courtesy of saying hi that mattered. It's what the email asked. Can we have a meeting to discuss some of your priorities so that we can see what areas there would be for collaboration with the new U.S. administration? That's a sea change. Because when LGBTIQ civil society is actually directly consulted, we can advocate for our priorities and we have a government that's listening. Listening and starting to speak out, including overseas. Sarah Kate Ellis from GLAAD says, remember Pride 2020? If you remember Pride last year, there was a specific memo that went around that embassies couldn't raise the Pride flag. This year, that's not the case. Jessica Stern from Outright says some proof of that could be seen in the Middle Eastern country of Bahrain. I saw a statement that the U.S. mission in Bahrain issued in honor of Pride Month to try to explain how pride is an American value. I said, fighting discrimination is an American value, whether it's based on anti-Blackness, the fight for women's rights, or whether it's about the fight for LGBTIQ rights. And so long as we're hosted by your country, we're going to be trying to fight for an inclusive notion of discrimination that incorporates everybody. Those words are powerful. 
And Stern says she's seen action, too. So in Uganda, 44 people were arrested at an LGBTIQ emergency shelter. I heard from this incredibly strong lawyer and advocate in Uganda, Adrian Juko, who's the executive director of the Human Rights and Awareness Protection Forum, that the U.S. government literally sent observers to the hearings to ensure that the rule of law was applied to the 44 people. What they basically did was they served as human rights observers. So far, the U.S. seems to be doing relatively well living up to Biden's memo, whether it's protecting the vulnerable during the immigration process, using America's diplomats to listen to advocacy groups, or speaking out when abuses occur around the world. But what about bigger change? Like pressuring those dozens of countries to end their laws criminalizing same-sex relations. Or pressuring the handful of countries where homosexuality can still be punished by death. Stern told us LGBTQ plus rights in the U.S. receive a lot more funding than elsewhere in the world. So first... U.S. government should be funding LGBTIQ civil society at the country level. But even with funding, Ellis says social and cultural norms remain a barrier to change, especially when those norms line up with the country's laws. We know here in the United States, 13% of the population is completely unmovable on LGBTQ issues, and it's based on religion. Diplomacy is not going to get you anywhere when religion is at the center of it. But I do think you can move them over time. But start with the lowest hanging fruit. By low hanging fruit, Ellis means countries that already protect human rights, even if they're historically religious, like Ireland. The Republic of Ireland is a country where the overwhelming majority of the population identifies with religion, predominantly Catholic, and Ireland is the only country on the planet to legalize marriage equality through a referendum. And the way the Irish community did it was by focusing on equality. That message carried the day and was very successful. But especially in countries that are much less tolerant, like Afghanistan or Saudi Arabia, we've yet to see signs that the U.S. wants to throw down over this issue. According to one report, the U.S. still sends billions in foreign aid each year to some countries where homosexuality is punishable by the death penalty. So while we can celebrate some victories for America's pride diplomacy this year, there's still a lot of work to be done. Before we go today, we want to talk about award season. And yeah, we know it's not really still award season for celebrities, but it is award season for a different group of people with a totally different job, saving the world. Not one of those Marvel comic dudes. We're talking about real-life human beings who are fighting climate change and protecting the planet. Each year since 1990, the Goldman Environmental Prize has been awarded to six people from all over the world, and this year's winners were just announced. They include a grandmother from Louisiana who stopped the construction of a factory in an area already known as Cancer Alley. Another winner from Peru worked with indigenous communities to protect more than 2 million acres of Amazon rainforest. And from the African nation of Malawi, Gloria Majika Komodo won for fighting the country's plastic industry. We called her up to hear her story, and since we've never been to Malawi, we asked her to tell us about growing up there. It's a beautiful country. My dad used to do a bit of farming just behind our house. We had wells there, we had sugarcane kind of plantation, a mini plantation. 
So I just remember that we had a lot of fresh vegetables all the time, too many vegetables. But it was always just so nice because the river was beautiful and we used to sometimes sneak away and, and just go and swim. We were not allowed to, but we would still go anyways. And back then the rivers were beautiful and then just so pristine. Early in her childhood, Gloria remembers going to the market and enjoying a popular local street food. There was a lot of paper. We used to use newspapers. We used to eat, we have what we call chihuahua, which is like a fast food kind of street food. And you'd eat it from newspapers. And it was always annoying that you would still get your hands a bit dirty from the ink from the newspapers. But it was all good fun and actually missed those days quite a lot. Part of Gloria's nostalgia has to do with a change that occurred at the market later in her childhood. She doesn't remember exactly when, but at some point, the newspaper wrap chips were gone and were replaced with little blue plastic bags. That solved the ink on your fingers issue, but by the time Gloria was a young adult working in environmental policy, she started to see the consequences. Especially when she would speak with farmers, who were seeing that increased plastic use meant animals were suffering, and so were their livelihoods. What's happening to a lot of the communities around a lot of the livestock that was being slaughtered at a very young age was because they had consumed plastic and therefore they had to be killed off at a very young age, therefore shortening the lifespan. Gloria says it didn't take long to realize similar things were happening all over Malawi. And in just the span of a few years, her country started using plastic everywhere without systems in place to dispose of it or recycle it. In a surprising move in 2015, Malawi became one of the first countries to ban thin plastics, like plastic bags. But that victory was short-lived. Plastics companies opposed the ban, saying it hurt their businesses, and got the ban overturned the following year. In response, Gloria sprang into action. She created a WhatsApp group where activists and community groups posted photos of the damage caused by plastic pollution, like clogged drains and dead fish and livestock. People in the group also shared stories of how all this plastic was ruining Malawi's farmers. Those stories, Gloria said, provided powerful counterarguments to the plastic industry. As much as they would claim that they were a huge contributor to economic development for the country, you could not deny that they were holding ransom an even bigger part of the economy because agriculture for us fuels about 30% of the GDP, which means that they're bigger than the plastic industry. So this was not a valid claim, and we had to demonstrate that. So we put together the stories, we worked with media, we organized marches, and it was really interesting to just see people come together. And you had school kids that would come and then say, we want to join in on the march, and you had people in the streets who came out to just meet us with all their banners and said, we support this and we want the ban to happen. Long story short, after a lot of court battles and lots of marches, the plastic bag ban was reinstated in 2019, and it's still in place today. For someone who says one of her key strengths is harmony, Gloria says she often surprised herself during the environmental campaign. I learned how aggressive I can get. <laughs> I don't really like conflict, but I think in this time, I was just so angry. I was just so driven that Something needs to be done. And I couldn't just stand the idea of five companies dictating it, what 17 million people have to go through. And so a lot of it was, no, we have to go and march. And everybody says, no, we have to engage in a dialogue and sit down at a table. And I'm like, no, 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 no. They have to see us in the streets and see that we're there and that our voice is very audible and that we're watching. By winning the Goldman Prize this month, Gloria joins the ranks of the world's most accomplished environmental activists. 
And at just 30 years old, she's not done yet. It's really incredible to be a young woman who would get this kind of recognition at such a young age and to be a young woman in what I would absolutely say is a man's world still. Because for us, the policy sector is still very much dominated by a lot of men. And I just want to say out there that you just need to pursue what you want to do. It's important to be grounded in your purpose and to do what makes you happy and to stand up. It doesn't matter if you feel really small or if you feel like you don't know enough. It's okay. They don't know what they're doing either. But if you know that what you're doing is right, that's all that's important. And I think you should really hold on to that and it will take you places. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by Luke Vargas and me, Alex Carr, with additional help from Kira Long. This episode was engineered by Andrew Calloway. The Skim's head of audio is Graylin Brashear. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, for more Skim and to sign up for our daily newsletter, head on over to theskim.com.